Hey, let me say a prayer for us, and we will jump right into our lesson tonight. Lord, thank you so much for bringing us together this evening. Thank you for the good health that we have with so many little things going around, and I do pray for those who are uh, struggling with the various things going around. I pray that it's not serious and they get well quickly. Lord, we thank you for our nation. We thank you for our church. We thank you for this fellowship. In Christ's name, amen. Well, you can text your questions during class. Uh, we're just going to have one parable tonight. I want to camp out on this one parable, so anxious to get whatever questions you have, whatever angle you'd like to explore. We've been talking about the parables Jesus told, and in this series we're talking about some of the really foundational parables. If you remember, we started with the sower. That's a parable about Jesus' teaching. That's Jesus starting his ministry saying, this is what the gospel's going to be like. This is how it's going to play out in the different kinds of soil, which were the different kinds of hearts. Then we talked about kingdom parables. We didn't look at all of them, of course, but you get the idea that Jesus, the idea of the kingdom is absolutely foundational to Jesus' teaching. Looking at it from a me-centric lens at the gospel really misses the whole idea of what God is doing, not just for us individually, but really, in a bigger sense, doing to reclaim all of his creation, the kingdom of God ushering itself into this world. We talked about judgment parables, the idea of there has to be a judgment. Without judgment, there's no justice. Without justice, the, what I call kingdom morality, we're going to talk about that in coming weeks, uh, what, the way God calls us to live in the world is really indefensible without the idea of ultimate justice. And the judgment uh, motif runs all through Jesus' teaching. Judgment is essential. Then we talked about salvation. Jesus talks about salvation parables, meaning how does one enter the kingdom? How does one be reconciled to God or right with God? We call that righteous. It's become, kind of a, it's become a religious word. It wasn't originally, but how do we become right with God where we live under his rule? So those salvation parables sort of turn the... The lens a little bit, and Jesus decides to look at the world as lost and found rather than good and bad. There is evil in the world, but Jesus says, I'd like you to think about it as lost sheep in the world. Well, I'd like in this lesson to sort of bring it together. It's kind of like the light in a prism. We talked about the parables give us the breadth of Jesus' teaching, and if you just look at one thing Jesus teaches, it's like looking at one color of the rainbow and you begin to not see the others. Jesus' teaching, when taken together, gives us that kind of holistic or pure white light of Jesus' teaching. So in this lesson, I want to talk about a parable that brings things together. It ties, pardon me, it ties together a lot of the ideas we've been talking about that Jesus is teaching. This parable is an illustration of uh, salvation, judgment, the kingdom idea, the receptivity of the gospel, and picks up some big themes we've been talking about. So I want to talk to you about the rich man and Lazarus. It's a fairly well-known story. If you don't know this story, you're going to love this story. I mean, it's profound in its impact. Very short little story, but very profound. It basically is two scenes and an epilogue. This parable is set with a scene on earth, a scene in heaven, and then an epilogue at the end. But first, let's look at the setting for this parable. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus finishes some teaching, and he says this, No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It says the Pharisees, who loved money, heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. And you get an interesting idea about what Jesus is going to do. And so many of the parables do this. He's going to turn the world's value system upside down. He's going to take a contrast and look at it from the Pharisee's point of view or the world's point of view and then he's going to turn it around and look at it through God's point of view. And so he's going to make a point. He's going to now tell a parable to these Pharisees to explain what he's talking about. So that's the setting. Jesus with the Pharisees, his teaching about you can't serve God and money. 
You can't be in the kingdom and not in the kingdom. You can't be serving the purposes of this world, following my self-centered desires, and be surrendered to God. And the Pharisees sneered at that because they kind of had a foot in each world. They were devout in some sense, but their hearts were not really there. Their behavior was following God to some extent, but their hearts were not. And Jesus wants to kind of turn that around a little bit. And this is a brilliant parable that does just that. So the first scene is a scene on earth. He said, there was a certain rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen, which were the, I mean, they were the best clothes you could get of the day. Purple was very expensive dye and linen was very nice fabric. He lived in luxury every day. Now at his gate, the gate to his estate, laid a beggar named Lazarus. He was covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. He wanted to go through the trash. He would eat whatever he could find. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. Now this would not have been a sight that was unusual to them in the sense that there were beggars in those days. There was even less of a social safety net then than now, far less then than now, particularly for someone who had no family. You were simply left to your own devices. The state had no mechanism to care for you. The law of Moses told Jews to care for other Jews, but you didn't see that happening all the time. And so he said, here's a man named Lazarus sitting outside the gate, wishing that he could eat what fell from the rich man's table. Now, the first contrast I want to show you before we dive into this is this is the only character who is ever named in Jesus' parables. Lazarus is the only character who's ever given a name in Jesus' parables. And what's interesting here right from the beginning is the rich man is a somebody who has no name. Lazarus is a nobody, and yet he has a name in this parable. And so you begin to get a hint from Jesus that he's very subtly planting the seed that things are not as they seem in this story. Well, Lazarus' name is not by accident. It's an interesting name. It's a form of the Jewish name Eleazar, and it means God helps or God is my help. Unfortunately, there's a bit of an irony in this name because the way Jesus starts to tell the story you look at Lazarus and you go, wow, what an ironic name. God is my help. You're covered with sores. You're a beggar. You're laying outside the rich man's gate hoping for scraps from his table. Yeah, God has really been good to you, Lazarus. And so at the beginning, there's this ironic twist on his name. The fact that he is named, he's named a great name, and yet it doesn't follow. It's like that joke about the guy who comes up and he's got the dog and the guy says, oh, I see your dog's had an accident. Yeah, he's a three-legged dog and he can't see and he doesn't hear very well. And the guy says, oh, what's his name? Lucky. <laughs> it's that kind of situation, you know. So Jesus is already putting some contrast into this story, which is one of the hallmarks of parables. Well, when he describes this person, he describes somebody that according to Jewish rabbis and Jewish teaching was basically cursed by God. Look at this. This is not in the Bible. This, uh, the Talmud, kind of a long story, but basically, you know, you've got the written law of Moses, the Old Testament, and the Pharisees had what they called the oral law, the law that was passed down by word of mouth that wasn't written down in the Bible. Well, there's 613 commandments in the Old Testament in the law of Moses, there were many, many hundreds more in this oral tradition. The Pharisees said this is something Moses handed down by word of mouth rather than being written down. And it was compiled into a document called the Mishnah. And they would, the rabbis would reason about these rules and make it very particular. Well, the Talmud is a commentary on this Mishnah, so it, it basically contains the accumulated wisdom of the Jewish wise men through the ages. And so in the Talmud, it says this, the rabbis taught there are three men whose lives are not counted as worth living. He who is dependent on the table of his neighbor, well, that's certainly Lazarus. 
He whose wife dominates over him, I have no comment on that whatsoever. And thirdly, he who has bodily suffering. So you see, Lazarus, according to the prevailing teaching of the time, was cursed by God, and the rabbis would say, your life isn't even worth living. You're almost less than human in a sense. And that's one of the reasons that the Jews weren't always helping those people. Because if you thought of that person as a fellow Jew, the law of Moses said you need to help your fellow Jews. But in this sense, you could say, you know, I don't know that I need to help you because, frankly, the rabbis would say, God's sort of forgotten about you. So you see the double irony in Lazarus' name, God helps. And yet the teaching of the rabbis and the accepted wisdom is, God, you are an outcast even from God and certainly from us. So Lazarus' name, Jesus is clever the way he orchestrates these stories. There's just layer upon layer of meaning. So at the most basic sense, he's going to set up a contrast. Rich man, poor man. But he begins to you know, put some troubling elements. Rich man doesn't have a name, but poor man does. Oh, and by the way, the poor man's name is God helps him. But wait a minute, he's cursed. Where's this guy going with this story? And that's kind of how Jesus drew his audience in. Well, before we go any further, I want to make one observation about this because this parable is often taught as a parable about riches and how to deal with riches. And that's actually not what this parable is about at all. I want you to notice, uh, Boyce makes this statement really well. It's important to recognize there's nothing here at the beginning of this parable or anywhere else in this parable that condemns the rich man for being rich or that praises the poor man for being poor. There's nothing in this parable. Now, I'm not going to tell you that the parable says, oh, it's great to be rich. I'm going to talk to you about that in a minute. But this parable isn't really about how much money the rich man has and how little Lazarus has. Now, Jesus is going to talk a lot about riches. For example, I'm just going to read to you from Luke chapter 18. This is the story of the... uh, Basically, young man comes to Jesus, said, what do I need to do to be right with God? He said, you know, keep the commandments. He said, I've done that since a boy. Jesus looked at him and said, you still lack this one thing, sell everything you have, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven, then come follow me. And when the young man heard it, now Jesus, that's the only person ever recorded Jesus told that to. And by the way, in this parable, I want you to notice, you're never going to see Jesus say, oh, rich man, you should have sold everything, given it to the poor. So I want us to see what the parable's actually talking about because it's way more profound than riches and poor. And so the young man became very sad because he was a man of great wealth. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for the rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Indeed, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Sometimes we think that is prescriptive meaning Jesus is issuing a prescription, a commandment, a rule that says if you're rich, you're not going to heaven. This is actually, though, as we read it, not prescriptive, it's predictive. What Jesus is saying is that riches bring with them, as does poverty, brings with it its own temptations, its own, uh, basically, its own pull on us. So what you're going to see in this parable is Jesus is really not going to say, Lazarus, you're a good guy because you're poor. Rich man, you're a bad guy because you're rich. And he's really not going to say that your condition on earth necessarily affects your condition in the afterlife. But you're going to notice that in this story, the fact that the rich man is rich works to his detriment in this story. And the fact that Lazarus is poor ends up working for his good. But I want you to understand there's nothing intrinsic about this at all. The reason he picks rich man, poor man, is because he's making a contrast with the Pharisees about where your allegiance lies. Remember, you can't serve God and money. So he said, fine, I'm going to give you a really big example that you will understand. Really, really rich, rich guy. Really, really, really poor outcast guy. So he's going to talk about this idea of Uh, really their status rather than their riches. The the other thing you notice that's been a theme that runs through this is the idea of justice. Already in this story, if you're hearing it, you probably begin to get a little uncomfortable 
Now, as Americans, we get uncomfortable because you know who we identify with in this story? Yeah, the rich guy. But what makes us uncomfortable on a bigger sense is the injustice of it. In other words, even we, who are rich by our world standards, maybe not as rich as this guy or we're not luxuriously wealthy, if we saw a beggar sitting at our gate, we would be pulled to say, you know, we need to help this person. In this story, you see no desire whatsoever to help. And it strikes us as being a little unjust. There's something not right here. There's a little not rightness that begins to creep into this story. A little bit of injustice for us. Okay, so watch what Jesus does. A couple of simple sentences. Rich man living in luxury. Lazarus sitting at his gate. He's, just a, he's got just about everything going for him. The only thing he doesn't have is a wife nagging him. But everything else is going against him. Second part of the parable. Scene changes. Scene two Flash forward to heaven. Watch what Jesus does with this. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Now he's going to talk about Abraham, the first Jew. He's the one who was righteous before God, and the Jews felt like his righteousness flowed down to all the Jews. So they took him up to Abraham's side. Now the rich man also died, and he was buried. And in hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called out to him, Father, Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in agony there. Besides all this, between us and you a great chasm has been fixed, so that those who want to go from where you are cannot, nor can anyone pass over from here. Fascinating story. First thing you notice as Jesus tells this story is the contrast. The whole scene has now flipped upside down. Because this is what you don't expect. If you've got the rich man, got the poor man, fast forward to the next life, and now you have the rich man who's at the bottom. In other words, he's in hell suffering, Lazarus is in heaven. Now, it doesn't tell you anything about their conduct. It doesn't say, Lazarus, you're in heaven just because you happen to be poor, or rich man, you're in hell just because you happen to be rich. He said, I'm going to just tell you how this plays out. Now, I want you to follow me as the things turned upside down. Notice how he shifted the point of view. On earth, you look at it from earthly terms and you say, gosh, I'd really rather be the rich guy than Lazarus. He says, but you know what? When you look at it from God's point of view, God said, no, you'd rather be Lazarus than the rich man in this story. And so you see a worldly view and you see God's view. And that's what Jesus started with this. Remember, he said, the things that are exalted on the earth are despised by God. In other words, God's economy operates on a different currency than the world's economy operates on. There's an interesting parallel here, and this is the key. It's not so much about the riches or the poverty. The key here is a principle about sowing and reaping. And you're going to see this all over the scripture. So let me flip over to this. This is Galatians chapter 6. You'll see Jesus teach this as well, but I'm just going to pull it out of a couple places. One, Paul writes this, don't kid yourself. Don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. You reap what you sow. The one who sows to please his sinful nature, follows our self-interest from that nature, will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. So basically what what he's saying there is, is if you look at this from God's view, there's a sense of justice in the world in that what we sow, that's what we reap. One more. This is Jesus in Luke 6. We don't tend to think about this passage in this way, but this passage is actually about the sowing and reaping idea. Do not judge, you will not be judged. Do not condemn, you won't be condemned. Forgive and you'll be forgiven. You see this idea of, it's not exactly reciprocity, 
It's the idea of what you sow, you tend to reap. If you sow compassion, ultimately you reap compassion. If you sow forgiveness, you reap forgiveness. Given it will be given to you, a good measure, pressed down, shaken together, and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Now, that's not always true in this life. And that's why this parable extends the timeline into the kingdom timeline. And you see judgment happening, and you see eternity happening, and you see the injustice that was happening with the rich man and Lazarus now righted in God's eyes. It's made right. And you see people reaping what they have sown. The rich man basically sowed to his desires, and he lived in luxury while Lazarus sat there having nothing. And he has sown self-centeredness, and he has reaped the benefits of self-centeredness. And so Jesus is basically kind of giving us this idea of reaping and sowing that in God's economy, what we do with what we have has consequences into eternity. That's what he's trying to show us as he tells this story. He's trying, remember, he's trying to address the Pharisees' value system, in a sense. Their value system is, yeah, you can follow God, but money's a really good thing. Jesus said, I'm not so sure about that, guys. Let me tell you a story. And he flips it upside down. So let me pause there before we get to the epilogue, because I want to spend most of our time on what are the lessons out of this. There are so many things we can glean out of this. But for a moment, let's pause there and see if you have any questions about just how Jesus has framed this story. Hmm? How important are the descriptions of the afterlife in the parable? Um, I, this person says they've been told that they could be symbolic. Yes, we'll probably we'll talk about that in some of the lessons about what you can know from this parable. But one thing you have to be careful, let's just go ahead and make this point now, and I'll, I'll hit it later. Parables are stories that are basically comparisons. And we need to be careful about making a parable an allegory. An allegory is a story where every single detail of that story fits into reality. Everything, every detail has significance. In other words, the sores of Lazarus would represent something else. The fact that you know, Lazarus was sitting at the gate, oh wait, that means something else. That's an allegory. The parables are not allegories. Parables are just com simple comparisons, really. They're laying down a story besides real life, and they typically make a big point. What is Jesus' intention here? Well, we know that he's answering the Pharisees, and he says, you think that you're righteous, you're going to be rich, and that means good things forever, and poor it means you're not righteous and you're going to be bad forever. He said, let me tell you a story. What he's trying to do with his story is turn their value system upside down. So we'll talk in a minute about what can you draw from this parable, but one key is do not make a parable, stretch it beyond what it wants to say. This parable mainly wants to say, talk about this role reversal between the two. So let me show you. We'll go to the epilogue. So then, after Abraham says to the rich man, you know, there's a chasm between us. He said, you had good things, and this is what you, you basically reaped what you've sown. Lazarus is being comforted here, and we can't cross this chasm to get to you even if we wanted to. In other words, it's set, it's fixed. So he answered, he said, well, then in that case, Father Abraham, at least send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them so that they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have the Bible, Moses and the prophets, meaning the Old Testament. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. He says, no, no, but Father Abraham, if somebody came from the dead to them, if they saw a ghost, then they would definitely repent. And he said to them, if they don't listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced even if someone comes from the dead. This is so clever, it's not funny. First of all, he's making the point to him. He says, you have Moses and the prophets. And so what does the rich man want? He says, now that I see the consequences of my earthly actions, I realize people need to repent. That's another theme, isn't it? We saw the theme of justice, and we saw the theme of 
repentance, basically living differently. He says, go tell my brothers, live differently. Because what you're doing here, what you sow, will be what you reap later. With what measure you measure it out, it will be measured to you. He said, these guys are living as selfishly as I did. You need to go tell them. They need to repent. Go scare them into it. Abraham says, you know what? If they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't even listen to someone who rose from the dead. Do we know of somebody who rose from the dead and came and said, I have good news for you? Yeah, Jesus Christ. He's predicting, remember the sower? He said, I'm going to bring you really good news. And some, you're not even going to listen. Some are going to listen, but you really don't take it into your heart. Remember that parable about our hearts? Even if someone raises from the dead, he said, if you won't believe this, you won't believe that. Remember when uh, Thomas, called Doubting Thomas, comes to Jesus and uh, he says to him, I'm not going to believe it unless I see it. And Jesus said, fine, here I am. Touch me if you want to. And he goes, my Lord and my God. And he said, Thomas, you believe because you've seen, but blessed are those who believe who have not seen. And that's kind of what he's saying here. So you see this kind of fast forward to the future. But in the parable itself, you see this principle of repentance. Repentance is needed. Here's a key idea, and this is kind of what Jesus wants to say to them. What you do here in this life ripples into eternity. So the Pharisees thought that they could follow God and love money. They thought they could be in the kingdom and in this world. They thought they could be right with God and still go pursue their own self-interest and self-gratification in the world. And Jesus says, you know, you don't understand God's economy because what you do here ripples into eternity. And so in this story, he says, if you could see the end of the road you are on, you would come tell yourself to repent, to live differently. So he's really confronting the Pharisees with this story and challenging their entire economy, if you will. So let's talk, move on from that. And let's talk about some lessons. What can you glean from this parable? Well, you see the key idea, but there's some other obvious things that jump out of this parable. The first is Jesus believed that heaven and hell were real. Jesus believed that heaven and hell were real. Now, that's not all that popular today, even among some Christians. Actually, I haven't met anybody who had issues with the idea of heaven. I've met a few people who have big issues with the idea of hell. Right? Most people are like, heaven sounds good to me. I don't believe in God, but I'll take the heaven part. Not many people, you know, really secular people, really like the idea of hell. Jesus believes there's a heaven and there's a hell. Second thing, Jesus obviously believes there's a judgment. In other words, there is justice. There is consequences of our actions. There's God setting things right, if you will. We call that justice, but think about where Lazarus was and the rich man, and think about how it played out, and God says, this is setting things right. So Jesus believed in heaven and hell. Jesus believed that judgment was real. Big issue here, and this really hit them in the face. Not everybody goes to heaven, because you see the Jews thought this. This is also what was taught by the rabbis in the Talmud. All Israel has a share in the world to come. What that means is all Jews go to heaven. Now, it goes on, fascinatingly, to start telling you, well, accept this, accept this, accept this, accept those guys. I mean, there are a few exceptions, but basically, if you're a child of Abraham, which is why Jesus put Abraham in this story, meaning if you are a descendant of Abraham, you're a Jew, Abraham's righteousness sort of covers you. You sort of tap into his reservoir of righteousness. So all Jews go to heaven. Well, obviously in this story, Jesus is challenging that. In fact, he says the people you think are the most righteous, the rich guy, I mean, he's rich. God must love him, right? Must bless him. Lazarus, he's poor. How could you say God helps him? God doesn't even care about him. He said the guy you think is most likely to end up in heaven doesn't end up in heaven. He just completely shatters this in this story. That's still true today, by the way. Now, I mean, it's true today that uh, many Jews have the same thought, but what I'm talking about now is Christians. A lot of Christians have issues with the idea of hell, and they struggle with the idea of, well, how could a good God send someone to hell? Jesus is going to go, how can a good God not send people to hell? How can you not have justice? How does any of this make sense without justice? Back, remember, the judgment parables. 
But when we think about it that way, you find that there are Christians who believe in hell, but they don't, or believe in heaven, but they don't believe in hell. And Jesus doesn't think that. I mean, this parable, you can, he believes there's a heaven and hell, he believes judgment is real, and he believes that not everybody goes to heaven. All right? Here's a question that's really commonly asked about this. Can we infer from this parable what's called the direct presence doctrine of heaven? And what that means is, here's the big argument amongst, well, it's not an argument, it's just two different points of view amongst Christians about what happens when you die. In other words, can we glean anything accurate from this parable about what happens when you die? So if you take this parable, the way Jesus is telling the story, he fast forwards, he said they died, rich man goes to hell, Lazarus goes to heaven. And so the direct presence doctrine of heaven means as soon as you die, you go to heaven or you go to hell. And many people like that teaching as long as you go to heaven. I have not met anybody who said, I want to get to hell as fast as possible, you know, so give me the express train. I hope when I die, I go right to hell. But like the idea and have that idea of a direct presence, meaning when you die, your soul ends up in heaven immediately. And there are passages in scripture that kind of give you that idea. I don't think you can draw that idea out of this parable simply because there are other scriptures that talk about it and it doesn't seem to be germane to the parable. He could have told this parable this way. He could have said they both died, they slept for 2,000 years, and when Revelation chapter 20 happened in judgment, they were raised up and stood before him and he went to hell, he went to heaven, now continue with the parable. Could have told it that way, right? So the key is, is that mechanism really important? I think not from this parable. But as long as we're here, let's talk about that idea. There's scripture that tend to indicate that when you die, you go to heaven or you go to hell. But there are also scriptures that indicate that there's a judgment day. So think about this. If we're all dying at different times, we're going to heaven or going to hell, we're all getting judged. I mean, there's no provisional stat. Can you imagine this? You die, you go to the pearly gates, which, you know, that's, that's problematic too, but let's just go with it as long as we're going. You go to the pearly gates, St. Peter's standing there because he has the keys, right, to the kingdom. All you Catholics know what I'm talking about. All right, so you go up there, you see St. Peter, he goes, hey, judgment hasn't happened yet and a little sketchy to me, but I'll tell you what, come on in your provisional status. We might have to ship you back out to hell. No, this is not the way this works. Right? So what's happening, and this is just the way Christians read, I'm making a little fun of it, but this is the way Christians reason is that, that judgment must then be happening all the time. If the rich man can go directly to hell and Lazarus can go directly to heaven. But there's scripture that seems to indicate that in the end times when the trumpet sounds and the Lord shall appear and he comes from heaven and all the dead in Christ shall rise up. And so you get another scripture that kind of indicates that perhaps when we die, we sleep. I hate to use that word because you know, it still implies duration, but you close your eyes in death, you wake up. It, there could be 10,000 years has gone on here, but it's exactly the next instant for us. In other words, there's no passage of time happening. You don't wake up and go, oh man, I'm stiff. I must have slept for 2,000 years. You know, it's not like that. So when you read the scriptures, you, you kind of get a hint of that. I resolve that pretty simply by not being dogmatic about it in the sense that I don't think time is going to work linearly once you get beyond death. I mean, I just think God is outside of time. And I'm not trying to harmonize this too simply, but I'm comfortable with people who feel that, you know what, when we die, you go directly to heaven. Or those who say, when we die, we sleep. But for us, it's a moment. We wake in ourselves and it is the judgment day. Either way, the key issue and the key issue in the parable is where will you end up? What are you sowing and what will you reap? So I don't think we can, from this parable, draw any conclusions about that to settle this one way or the other. But both of those views are reasonable ways to try to understand the scripture. We go directly to heaven, we don't. I'll tell you one piece of this that I'm not so sure about. When I was a kid, probably because of this parable, I was taught, that we, we didn't go to church or anything, so I didn't want you to understand that we were like theologians or scholars in my family, but it was just kind of, here's kind of what was taught and passed on. 
is that when you die, you go to heaven or you go to hell, and that those who have died before us are in heaven. Nobody ever said, you know, Uncle George is down in hell looking up at us. Nobody ever said that. They just always said, Aunt Mabie's in heaven watching us now. I don't know about you, but that kind of creeped me out as a kid. And I thought to myself, I don't know if I want her watching me right now because I'm not always that proud of everything I'm doing. You know, does she know I stole that pencil? You know, it kind of bothers me a little bit. Then, as I grew older and I had children, I, said, I thought to myself, this is serious now, I thought to myself, I hope that that is not correct because there are things that happen on earth that I do not want to see because I think there are things that will break our hearts and I think God is very gracious. So I'm just giving you an opinion. I think talking about this parable being really literal and trying to tell you exactly what heaven and hell are like and you can see the people in hell and talk to them, I think that's part of the parable. I don't know that you can read more into it than that. So the direct presence doctrine of hell or heaven is just telling us that I think the answer is probably no. Uh, as far as the nature of heaven and hell, I don't know that you can read too much into it, but have you noticed, by the way, that you've seen kind of a theme running through the judgment parables that hell is not pleasant? Remember in the judgment parables, he said, you'll be cast out where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. You've seen the idea of fire before. Here, in this parable, you get the idea of, he says, I'm in agony here in this fire. Ask Lazarus to come dip his finger in water and put it on my tongue. I also do not believe that out of those parables, you can necessarily be dogmatic and say, well, hell just must be a place where you're constantly burning up in fire. I think that's the image that is used, and it may very well be true, but I think that that's, again, stretching the parables. But what do you get out of it is you want to be in heaven in the presence of God and comforted. You do not want to be in hell out of the presence of God, and in some sense in torment, that it is unpleasant. That's not a popular thing to say today. Christians typically today would like to confront the secular world by saying, you know, hell, the guy's not that bad a guy. If there's a hell, it's sort of like having black and white TV. It's sort of like being at a Starbucks and their Wi-Fi is down. You know, it's just not pleasant, but it's not really that bad. And I would simply say that we might be a little cowardly in our theology on that because Jesus seems to describe it as a, a very undesirable place. So let me just leave it at that for the moment and say we need to be careful about drawing conclusions too far on these parables but the idea of the reality of heaven and hell, the reality of judgment, the reality that not everybody goes to heaven, and then the reality is that hell is unpleasant and heaven is the presence of God. I think those things seem to run through all the parables. Question? I have a couple of questions about hell. Um, did the Jews have a different view of hell than we as Christians do? And is it significant that Jesus actually uses the word here in this parable? Yes, good question. Do the Jews have a different view of hell, and is it significant of the word he's using? Yeah, okay, let me think of a good way to explain it. Yes, yeah, it's, it, they definitely had a different view of hell, and yes, it's fascinating the way Jesus talks about it. Uh, because I know that you think that hell is a, is a real well-defined theological concept, and it's not actually. It's sort of a co-opted idea. So first, real short version, Jews not a very well-defined view of heaven and hell. The law of Moses was like, you know my analogy, is like raising a toddler. And so the toddler doesn't, un I remember when I went to the machine one time and put my uh, card in, put in my pin and got some cash. And I remember my kids were little. And then later, I mean it was a week or two later, they wanted some toy and I said, we cannot afford that. And they said, of course we can. You just put that card in and you put in the pin and you get this money. Well, yeah, I mean, it makes sense from their point of view, right? They don't understand, nor could I really explain the whole story. The law of Moses is kind of like that. You'll notice that it doesn't talk a lot about heaven and hell. You just don't see a lot. It focuses more on, okay, you're two years old. Let me help you understand how you follow God when you're two years old. So they didn't have a well-defined idea. In fact, some of them, the Sadducees, said there's no life after death. Pharisees said, oh, no, there's a resurrection, and in some sense, God is going to judge us. In other words, if we will be righteous here, he will reward us in the afterlife. 
Who's Jesus talking to, by the way, in this parable? Pharisees. And he said, I want to tell you about the afterlife. They go, oh, we believe in that. He goes, yeah, you just don't understand it very well. Let me tell you how it works. So they didn't have a well-defined idea of that. And they used a Hebrew word. They actually used several Hebrew words called Sheol, which is the place of the dead. Because everybody had an idea of, well, if you're going to be something after death, there's got to be a sort of a place that you go to. And think of it as just kind of a, it's just sort of a place of the dead. But they didn't really know that much about what happened to you there. The Greeks had a very well-defined idea of hell, and they had a word for it called Hades. Hades was a god. He's a guy, and I realize any of you that have watched any really good uh, you know, movies about this realize, oh, there's Zeus and there's his brother Hades, and Zeus got the good job, and Hades got the bad job, right? So he's down below. They actually thought Hades was a god. He was in charge of all the dead people. After you died, Hades was your boss. And it became known as a place. Hades is also the place where the god Hades lives. And you know what? It's probably under the ground. In fact, they thought that caves, some caves were entrances, physically, literally, entrances to Hades. So when you died, you sort of went to Hades and you sort of wandered around. It really was like a black and white existence. You weren't like tormented. You weren't like really happy. You just sort of lived out your life in you know, sort of black and white and just, you know, not, not really a color kind of a life at all. So they had this idea of Hades, again, not real well-defined, but the idea of this is a place that you will go. The New Testament, and Jesus co-ops those words to paint a picture. So he uses Hades, and everybody goes, oh, we know what Hades is. That's where the Greek thinks you go after you're dead. He goes, yeah, well, I'm going to tell you about that place. I'm going to tell you what happens to you after you die. He's using words they understand to explain concepts they don't. So he'll also use the word sheol in other contexts. He'll say, you know that place where you guys think you go after you die? Yeah, we don't know much about it. Well, let me tell you a little bit about it. So he does use those words, and he co-ops words they understood to teach them things they don't understand. So the Jews... Had, they did not understand much about the afterlife, and Jesus chooses words that were in common usage. Your Bibles typically translate it hell, because we, English speakers in the 21st century, have this idea of, oh, hell's that place where you go when you die, and it doesn't turn out so well. So that's why they translate it that way. I realize it's kind of long-winded, but very interesting. You need to realize Jesus is not teaching them about something they know. He's teaching them stuff they have no idea. He goes, you know that Hades place? Yeah. I'm going to tell you how this works. Once there was a rich man and once there was a Lazarus. This is new teaching to them. This is really playing with their paradigm and shaping their minds. Good question. Well, let's talk about kind of one of the key ideas here. The key idea is not the wealth or the poverty of the individuals. The rich man is not faulted because of what he has. He's faulted because of what he does with it. What he sows, he then ends up reaping. You get this idea of how we respond to those in need with what we have is the basis for this parable. So he doesn't say to the Pharisees, he's rich, automatically in hell. What he says is, look what he does with what he has. Look how he responds to people in need. Look at these passages. This is the key. 1 Timothy 6, great passage, talks about wealth. Command those who are rich in this present world, that's the rich guy we just talked about, not to be arrogant or put their hope in wealth. That's a good idea, because remember what happened to the rich guy afterwards? He said, you better go warn my brothers that what they do with what they have Man, it makes a difference in eternity. He said, just warn them. Don't put your hope in that wealth. It's so uncertain. Put your hope in God, who provides us with everything for our enjoyment, meaning you, everything you have comes from God. He's very interested in what you do with it. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they lay up treasures for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. What's he talking about? How you use it here reverberates into eternity. Imagine this parable a little differently. There was a certain rich man, and he saw Lazarus at his gate. And so he was able to, so he paid for health care for Lazarus and bound up his sores and fed Lazarus, 
helped get him some training. Lazarus got a job and married, had 2.3 children who played soccer on the weekends, and he had, a, he had a decent life, and the rich man went on his way, and they became friends for the rest of their life. And he did those kinds of things all the time with all the stuff God had given him. You think this story turns out differently? Of course this story turns out differently, because that's Jesus' point. What we do, because what we do with what we have reflects our attitude about God. Remember who he's talking to, the Pharisees. They said, nah, you can follow God and you can be rich and selfish with it if you want to. He said, let me just tell you how this works, guys. You know this heaven and hell thing? I'm going to tell you how it plays itself out. What you do with what you have, he says, reflects what you really are following. And he says, here, put your hope in God, not in these things. He said, so store up some treasure in heaven. You see Jesus in chapter 6 saying this exact same thing in Matthew. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth. He said, those things don't last. That's what the rich man found out. He go, I had tons of stuff. I wonder who's playing with it now. I wonder who's playing with my toys because here I am in hell. He said, those things are uncertain. Store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy. Thieves don't break in and steal. Your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That's what he's saying about the rich man. It's not his treasure that was a problem, but how he used it reflected where his heart was. And guess where his heart led him? His heart led him to judgment, to destruction. That's the essence of this parable. And there's a powerful lesson for you and for me out of that. And the lesson is not this, feel guilty because you have stuff. That's not the lesson. The lesson isn't sell everything you have and give it to the poor. That's not Jesus' prescription for everybody. But here's what he's saying, and each one of us needs to weigh this in our heart. How do we respond to the people in need who come across our path with what we have? And I'd really like you to think bigger than just wealth. I want, you, want us to think about our wealth. Don't misunderstand me. But I want us to think bigger because you're going to see Jesus talking about, in parables before, about having mercy right? Having mercy on the one who uh, I was forgiven, so I'm going to forgive you. He's saying, you've been forgiven, be generous with your forgiveness. You've received compassion, be generous with your compassion. Terry, you have received enough and more than you need, so be generous with what God has given you. Do you see this principle? It's the sowing and reaping. It's the where is my heart and what I do with my time, my talents, my forgiveness, my encouragement, my compassion, my stuff, all reflects where my ultimate treasure is, where I believe my ultimate treasure is. That's the point of this parable. And that's a powerful lesson for us. It's not a negative lesson. It's not a you should feel guilty for being an American. You should feel guilty because you drove here in a nice car and there are people who don't have... That's not the point. The point is to make all of us think just like he was trying to do with the Pharisees. He said, I want you to think, if you, if you believe that this is the way it works, that there's judgment, there's heaven and hell, that there's sowing and reaping, that God expects you to invest forever, if you believe that, Pharisees, would you do something different? Because that rich man wished he had done something different. And I think this parable says the same thing to you and me. It simply says, this is Jesus who loves us. He's not here to beat us over the head. He just said... If you believed what I've been teaching you, that there's a way to be right with God, there's a heaven and there's a hell, and there's a justice, God sets things right. If you believe that, would it change the way you used your time and your talent, your forgiveness, your compassion, your money? That's the question of this parable for you and for me. It's not a guilt trip. It's just to stop and make us think and say, yeah, wait a minute. I do believe that. I do believe that what Jesus said is true. What then does that mean about how I will use all the things I've been given? What we do here and now ripples into eternity. And Jesus is simply confronting us saying, if you live out what you believe, would it change what you're doing? And I hope that every one of us will go, yeah, you know, actually it would. Thank you. And so we begin to follow Jesus more closely by being more attuned to how are we meeting the people that come across our path that are in need. Jesus doesn't say to you, by the way, you should sell everything you have, and then I'd like you to go to Syria because there's some people there that need help. Not necessarily what he's saying. 
He may be saying something to us corporately about that, but he's mostly saying, who's sitting at your gate? Who do you run across and go, you know what? I'm actually in a position to give. Who is the person at your work? And that's going to sound trivial, but I want you to understand this is a big deal in God's economy. Who is the person at your work who could really use some encouragement? Who is the person there who's struggling with a, a weight of guilt and sin and who, would, who could kind of hear some good news? Who is the person in your home who needs your time, who needs your attention, who needs your compassion, who needs a little forgiveness? These are all ways of meeting the needs of the people around us. That's what the parable about the rich man and Lazarus is about. Not about money, not about poverty. It's about what do we do with what we have when we come across people who are in need. And I'd like us to open our eyes and see people in need in a lot of ways because there are a lot of needs in our world, and frankly, most of them are not money. I know I've told you this before. Uh, one of my favorite quotes from Mother Teresa. Mother Teresa devoted her life. She took a vow of poverty. She became poor. She worked with the poor. And I found this a really curious thing that she said because from my point of view, the kind of poverty she was dealing with is probably right down there as the bedrock problem in humanity. I mean, if you've got that problem, you don't, you don't have any other bigger problems than that. But that's not what she said. She said, I have found in working with the poor, the poorest of the poor, that the greatest poverty is to not be loved. You know, she realized she couldn't fix their economic condition for everybody, but she spent a lot of her time being with people when they died to, so that they would know that they were loved. And she writes about how their faces will light up, how the Lazaruses of the world light up just knowing someone cares about me. Never underestimate caring for people, loving people. Well, this parable is good for two reasons. I think it kind of ties in the whole idea of heaven and hell and salvation and consequences, but it also springboards us into our next discussion. Jesus has a lot of parables that start to get down to bedrock like, okay, what does it look like to live in the kingdom? Very practically applicable. In fact, I like this quote. Some sections of the Bible give us a grand theology. Some move us to grateful responses to God. The parables ask us if there's been any real difference in our lives. And so in our next few weeks, I'd like to dive into Jesus' teachings for our daily life and flesh out the idea of what does it look like to live in the kingdom of God versus living in the kingdom of the world. And you're going to begin to see a lot of things that you as followers of Christ already do, and I'd like to put some foundation under it of why do we do some of the things that we do. So this week, look out for the Lazaruses in your life. And remember, anyone who's constantly nagged has no life at all. <laughs> Talk to you next week. That's all I'm saying about that. <laughs>